please pray with me? Oh, Father, how wonderful and how marvelous it is to know, to be sure of, the love you have for us. We thank you, God, and praise you because you are great. You are most worthy of praise, and your greatness no one can fathom. You are gracious and compassionate. You slow to anger, and you are rich in love. You are good to all, and you have compassion on all you have made. So all you have made will praise you, O God. We, your saints, will extol you and tell the glory of your kingdom. You are faithful to all your promises, and you are loving toward all you have made. And you satisfy the desire of every living thing. We thank you, God, and praise you that you are righteous in all your ways. And you are near to all who call to you, who call to, on to you in truth. You watch over those who love you. So our mouths will speak in praise of you, Lord. And we want every creature everywhere to praise your holy name. Father God, how grateful we are that you chose to make yourself known to us through an amazing plan that we will never fully comprehend, that from the foundation of the world, you formulated our rescue plan because of your great love for us, that though being just human, you consider us worthy of giving your son and you lift us higher than the angels in your sight, Father. Thank you that we are precious in your sight. Father, we thank you that because you love us, you also provide your all-sufficient power, your all-sufficient provision and presence for us while we sojourn on this temporary earth. And so, Father, we call upon you now to be with Finn Brown, we ask you to please protect him and heal these bones that have been broken. And Father, how we praise you for good surgeons that you have connected him with. And just now we ask you to be at work in his little body. We also lift up the Broderick's grandson, Briggs, and we ask the same thing, Lord. There's a puzzling thing going on. Please show the doctors what it is and allow this medical team to act quickly when they get answers. And Lord, we pray for comfort for those who are grieving the death of their dear ones. Especially now we lift up Daryl and all the Hagen's family at the loss of his mother, Lord. Would you please provide your uh, supernatural presence in, in the way of comfort and peace. And Lord, we also lift up the, any, all those that are with, have long-term medical issues, Lord. Please strengthen them in their inner man. Give them perseverance and fill them with hope as they day by day keep their eyes fixed on you. For Lord, we confess that our souls do find rest in you alone. Lord, help us not to look to our circumstance or fickle emotions, Lord, but we rest in you alone and our salvation comes from you. You alone are our rock and our salvation, Lord. You have experientially shown us this. We have found you to be our faithful God, our fortress. And we declare because of this, we will never be shaken because of who you are. And Father, how we thank you today that we can gather together this place we call Fellowship Bible Church. And Father, we thank you we can gather in your name to worship together 
and also to hear truth and be taught. Thank you so much for the staff that you have brought together here. We come together so that we might be equipped by Tim's good teaching to walk in this fallen world as light to those that are still in a dark place. Father, may you choose to use us to draw men to yourself. And so today, would you please uh, just equip Tim by your Holy Spirit and open our hearts, quicken our spirits to receive what you have for us today. And so we ask all of this in your amazing and wonderful name. Amen. Thank you, James. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us for worship um, this morning. Uh, I'm going to ask you to draw your attention to the uh, bulletin that we have. And if you didn't get one on your way in, there's some available on this countertop here. Uh, several things going on in the life of the church um, this week and month. The first update I'll give you is there is one change, and that is that tonight we will not be doing our 1 Corinthians study uh, just because of some uh, sicknesses in the Hundley household and uh, the complication of a busy week sent, uh, spent on things in the sanctuary. We are postponing um, this week of the 1 Corinthians study one more week, so that 1 Corinthians study, which was supposed to be just every Sunday night in June, We'll now not meet this week, we'll meet next Sunday night, and then finish on August the 7th. So if you're a part of that, just make note of that, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, please join us next Sunday for that. We do provide childcare. We'd love to have uh, more people join us, and if you want to catch up on what's happened so far, we do have videos available so you can catch up. The Kids Ministry Weekly stuff is um, up and running this week, Terrific Tuesdays, and then uh, Preschool story time, And then uh, starting the 6th, we have a couple weeks of just really busy, good family life stuff going on. On August the 6th, we have our first Saturday fellowship, which is Wiffle Ball and Watermelon here um, on the church campus. That's August 6th, 3 to 5 in the afternoon. And then on the uh, 14th will be a big day because, number one, the Sunday morning, the 14th, will be our first Sunday morning back in the sanctuary in our normal worship space. And so um, we would love for you to join us for that Sunday. It'll be a special celebration in multiple ways, and I'll share some more about that here in a minute. Um, but then after the service, well, that evening um, on the 14th, we'll have our Back to School Splash, which is a joint kids and youth ministry event. We'll uh, provide uh, hot dogs and dinner for families, and we'd love for any of you to be a part of that. And uh, we'll need volunteers, um, but we'll also just need people to come and slide down water slides and stuff like that. So uh, bring your kids, bring grandkids, um, youth. Uh, there will be different times on the... We won't have 18-year-olds uh, and 8-year-olds on the slides at the same time, you know, so keep track of that. We'll give you some more details on um, the timing for all that sort of stuff. And then on the 21st, we have another fellowship event that's also an important um, just informational event um, for the body life, and that is we have an ice cream social and congregational meeting, and what that, what that means is that anyone is welcome to this, by the way, not just church members. If, you, if you, this is your first Sunday with us, um, today, you are welcome to come to our congregational meeting in just three weeks or four weeks. And so what we do at the congregational meeting is first, we hang out and eat ice cream, which is awesome. And then second, we go into ministry reports and we will provide childcare for the ministry report 
part of the evening. But in those ministry reports, you'll hear from the chairman of the elders, from our treasurer, from myself, and different um, staff members leading different areas of ministry about new stuff, about what's going on this fall in youth and kids ministry, and uh, any other important church initiatives that you need to know about. So we'd love for you to add that to your calendar and uh, plan to join us for that. Now, if you would, if you have your own copy of the scriptures, uh, turn to Romans chapter 6. That's going to be kind of our focal point. We'll be jumping around a lot this morning, so uh, be ready to, to keep up and um, either click buttons on your phone quickly or turn pages quickly. But we'll start in Romans chapter 6. But first, I'm going to take you way back, all the way to 1995, when little Tim Cheney was sitting on a couch with my dad. And let's be clear here, little Tim Cheney wasn't actually that little, even in 1995. Um, but... Uh, the little Tim Cheney, that was like the 80s. But I was 10 years old, and I was already um, thinking through the concepts that we're talking about today. And this slightly smaller version of Tim Cheney in 1995 went through this gauntlet of interview and information. And, and here's what I mean by a gauntlet, okay? In Fellowship Bible Church, here's what happens when you get baptized. You have to come and you have to meet with me or one of the other pastors, and we talk and we ask questions. And I can give you a personal guarantee that whenever you come to me to discuss baptism and the potential step of going forward in baptism, I will make it easier for you than it was made for me at 9 and 10 years old. Because I did not just interview with a pastor about baptism. First, I had my mother and then I had my father, and then I had the pastor. And I can assure you, in a way that you might not expect, those meetings got progressively easier by a lot. Like the pastor meeting, I know some of y'all thinking, man, nine, ten-year-old kid, it's going to be really intimidating sitting down talking to the senior pastor. And I was until I got in the room and was like, this dude is easy. He's not nearly as hard as my dad. And oh, by the way, my dad didn't ask questions anything like the questions my mom asked over here. Because my mom was grilling me. And my mom, I, I actually remember the, the conversation. And um, with, when the conversation came to the three of us, my mom was like, well, did he understand this? Did he say this? Did he say this? And my dad's like, he said enough. Like he doesn't, he doesn't get everything, but, but he said enough. And this was this tension of what I had to explain to get to the point of baptism, to get to the point of making a public profession of the faith that I had. Because I can tell you more of my story, to go back a few years, and, and this probably was a little Tim Cheney, but when I was about six years old, I was sitting on a couch with my dad and my brother, and, and here's the way I always tell my testimony, is that the Spirit of God didn't work on me through the proclamation of the word in a service or anything like that. The Spirit of God worked on me through the question asking of my brother. Because we went to this service together as a family, and something in the service, in the preaching of the word, uh, stuck with my brother. And I probably, I, I probably wasn't even listening. But the preaching of the word stuck with my brother to where we came home on a Sunday night, and my brother had all these questions, and I was just eavesdropping. And eavesdropping was enough for the Spirit of God to get a hold of me at a very young age and cause me to ask and wonder those same things. And I do believe at six years old, God saved me. 
But then, and, and let me just say, I think that's somewhat unique. I'm not sure if you're a parent, grandparent, thinking through these questions of sin and salvation with a child. It's so hard, y'all. Like, I'm in the stage. I've got six, eight, and almost ten. Those questions are so hard to discern and talk to your kids about what their understanding of the gospel is when you know, and this is the way it should be, you know as an adult there's so much more beauty that they can't understand of the gospel yet. And yet you enter into the kingdom with faith as a child. So you want to affirm childlike faith, but you also want to challenge them to grow in that faith in such a delicate balance. And that's where I was, way back in 1995, going from my mother to my father and into the senior pastor of our church and trying to, the three of them trying to discern through this series of meetings, where was little Tim in his discernment of the gospel and in his commitment to publicly live out the gospel? And I remember that, that um, meeting with the senior pastor of like, man, you get it as well as I've ever had a 10-year-old get it. Like, because of the difficulty, not that I'm not bragging on me, I'm saying because of what my parents put me through to get to that point. And I've just been reflecting on that so much because of multiple reasons. Number one, I've got three kids, six, eight, and ten. I'm asking all of these questions, thinking through all of these things with what their understanding of the gospel is, desperately wanting them to be secure in Christ, and excited about them one day taking the step of baptism. But, so that's, that's got me weighed down on this end, thinking through these things constantly. But also, on this other end, thinking through one of the cool things of the timing of, of where we are and what we're doing right now is when we get back in that room on August 14th, the first service that we get in there, we get to have a baptism service together. We get to do it on a Sunday morning with a brand new baptismal pool that we, that we actually purchased and had delivered about two weeks before the fire back in November. And so we haven't used it, and, but we've been waiting until we get back into the room to have the first baptism service on a Sunday morning we've done in a long time and to celebrate it. And so it's got me asking all these questions. And as we spend eight weeks this summer in July and August thinking through what we do when we gather, why the physical gathering of the, of the body of Christ matters, and what, why what we do when we gather matters. Today we're jumping into this question of why we baptize, and why we baptize publicly together. Because the last few weeks, we've talked about things that make sense. We've talked about gathering, we've talked about preaching the word, we've talked about praying. Those things make sense to do publicly Baptizing isn't something we do every, some, every single Sunday. It's something we do more occasionally. But it is so vital to the gathering of the church. And that's where we're going this morning. And we're going we're gonna to talk about baptism. Again, this is like it is the last few weeks. It's going to be more topical. We're not going to stay in one scripture. Um, somebody was telling me, I was talking to a church member in the last two weeks that told me, I feel like I have to adjust my listening. And, and I fully appreciate that about your situation as listeners now. Usually I give you one passage. We go through a passage verse by verse. I'm going to go through about 10 different verses from four different books today. And I might actually refer to a couple more. So you're going to have to do some keeping up. You might just scribble some things down. But then I'll give you this at the end. Um, this is a, a document that we produced as a church a few years ago. And it's just a, a one-page sheet. Why should I be baptized? And if you ever come forward and say, I want to be baptized at Fellowship Bible Church, 
you're going to have a meeting with a pastor, and you're going to go over this document together. And I have these on the countertop or on the welcome table between the buildings there. And I would really invite you to, to check this out at the end of the service. And this has a lot of the stuff that I'm going to say today. So if you miss something, look at this, and it's probably got it. Uh, Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Actually, before we do, are, are five questions for this morning. Okay? Uh, what is baptism? Number two, what does baptism mean? Number three, why? Why do we get baptized? Number four, when? Should we get baptized immediately? Should we wait till we're more mature? Do we baptize babies? Do we baptize believers? Those sort of things. And then how? Number five, how should we baptize? So these are our questions for this morning. And as we unpack these questions, we're going to go through, as I said, a few different sections of Scripture. First, what is baptism? I'll tell you just your Greek lesson for the day. I usually try not to do more than one Greek lesson a Sunday, so I'll give you one Greek word for the day. Um, the, the Greek word for baptism is going to be shocking to you. It's baptizo, which sounds a lot like baptism, right? Um, but the Greek word for baptism, baptizo, actually means immersion. And so the, the word for baptism, it gets used in different ways in Scripture. There is a reference to water baptism, there is also a reference to the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Scripture as well. And so we, understanding when baptism is referring to water baptism and when it is referring to the filling of the Holy Spirit uh, is important. Today we're talking about the physical action of water baptism. Why are we doing that and what are we doing when we do it? And, and I'm going to tell you that what we believe in our church about baptism is that baptism is an act of believers. It's a physical act of obedience in which believers are immersed in the water as a public celebration of what God has already done in their lives. A physical symbol of something that's already spiritually true, that the Spirit of God has already worked in that believer and has renewed that believer, and that believer is already a new creation in Christ before they enter the waters of baptism. The waters of baptism are a physical symbol proclaiming what has already happened. A great illustration for this, okay, is Jesus has ordained a couple of physical pictures for us as Christians to do as we gather together. And in just a few weeks, I'm going to talk about the other one, and that is the Lord's Supper. And so baptism and the Lord's Supper have a similar function within Christian worship. They're physical signs so that we can see, touch, feel, and even taste what is happening in our worship. So for the last um, five years, Jess and I in our home have, six years I guess, have little by little gone through different sections of our house and remodeled, renewed different areas. And as we do that, we hit the same obstacle every single time. Uh, number one, Tim doesn't know what he's doing. But, so that's always an obstacle. But in those remodels, it's great because i got a father-in-law that knows what he's doing. But you have this like back and forth where Tim has the ability to kind of come up with these visions and, and creatively envision different possibilities. Jerry actually knows whether or not it's going to work or not. And so Jerry and Tim have a conversation over here about something 
physically, that what are we going to do? How are we going to do it? What's going to be the end goal? That sort of thing. And Jess is always over here like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Show me a picture. I'm a visual person. I need to see it. All of your many words over here of you two guys talking about all this stuff, that doesn't help me at all. I need to see what you're doing. And that's a good thing. It's a great balance for, for us in working together. Because again, Tim has lots of visions that he has no idea what he's talking about. Jerry tells me if it's going to work. Jess is more practical and says, give me a picture because I don't know if it's going to look good. And so the, the, that, that back and forth of coming together is just true of my marriage and my family. But it's also true in the church. Because we need real life, physical depictions of these great spiritual realities that we believe in so strongly. It's okay to be a visual person and a physical person and say, I want to see it, I want to feel it, I want to touch it. And the Lord's Supper and baptism are given to us. We call them ordinances. Ordinances is a really fancy word for saying Jesus ordained that we do it. Jesus told us to baptize believers. Jesus told us to uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper as we gather together. There are practices that are ordained by Jesus. But in these practices, both have some, are symbolic representations of the beauty of the gospel. The Lord's Supper. You're not saved by consuming the Lord's Supper. You're not saved by the physical body of Jesus entering into your system and the physical blood of Jesus entering into your system. You remember, you recognize, you celebrate, and you do that often. And every time you do that, there is spiritual power in it. And one of the ways that we struggle with the Lord's Supper is we argue over what is and is not happening and how literal we should take Jesus saying, this is my body, this is my blood. And so when I say that it's not the literal body of Jesus and not literally the blood of Jesus, I am not saying it's not a very significant, all-important spiritual practice. We should never diminish the beauty of the spiritual practice. And so with baptism, I'm going to tell you today, baptism, the waters of baptism, do not save you. But please don't hear me say, you don't have to do it. That's not what I said. I, I, there's a difference between saying the waters of baptism do not save you and you are saved outside of the waters of baptism. And that's not me saying baptism is unimportant. It is a vital, important physical representation of a great spiritual reality. And the practice is beautiful when it happens within a believer. It's a beautiful experience for that believer. And it's also a beautiful experience for the church that gathers and celebrates. So for my, baptize, my baptism, nobody was in the room with me when I was six years old, except for my dad and my brother. And yet, when I was 10 years old and baptized, everybody in the church got to celebrate. And it allows the church to be a community and a part of a celebration of somebody's new life with Christ. So that's a very long extended introduction. I haven't even got to any of the five scriptures we're going to talk about today. So Romans chapter 6, let's go. Um, what does baptism mean from Romans 6 verses 3 and 4? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So it's Romans 6, 3 and 4, and we're going to camp out here for a minute to see three beautiful pictures, three illustrations in this passage of what baptism means. 
Number one, baptism illustrates our union with Christ. Verse three, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, first thing we need to think about with baptism is what does it mean to be baptized into Christ Jesus? What does it mean if we translate it more literally that we are immersed in Christ Jesus? That would be the literal translation. We are immersed into Christ Jesus, which means Jesus overwhelms us, overcomes us, and we enter into, through a deep spiritual union, we enter into a deep connection with Christ. And this is something, this is where we engage the people in the room that are already baptized. And you're sitting there thinking, I've been baptized. I don't have a question about my baptism. It was good. It was 30 years ago. I barely remember it. It's great. But maybe I don't need this sermon. This is the part that we all need. When we are baptized, we are saying that we are united with Christ. And so my question for the baptized today is, do you still have that sense of the union with Christ that you were so excited about and so celebratory over when you first entered into relationship with him? Because that is the first thing that baptism means. When you go in the water, you are overwhelmed by Jesus. And Jesus is now in you, and you are now in him. Now again, that happens through the Spirit of God, immersing you, overwhelming you, before you enter into the physical water. But the physical water is a beautiful reminder for you, and a, and a picture for everybody else, I've just been overcome by Jesus, and by the Spirit of God. And now, you cannot describe me without me being in Jesus. Because I am something that is spiritually new, that is spiritually different. I will never wash the implications of this event off of me, and nor do I want to, because the sin has been washed away, and I'm new with Christ. So that first picture of being united with Christ in baptism is so beautiful, we cannot diminish it. The second picture, which is so beautiful and essential to, in particular, baptism by immersion, the type of baptism we do, is that in, in baptism, we are then um, celebrating and united with Jesus in his burial and his resurrection. Verse 4 of Romans 6, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so there's something beautiful, important, about going under the water and coming back out of the water. And so in baptism, what we do, I put my arm out, somebody grabs onto my arm, I put my hand on their back, and I put them under the water. Now, I don't do it harshly, I'm not like rough with people, but it is important that they go under the water and like all the way under because it's a picture of death. And you have to communicate that to somebody beforehand. You have to communicate that what I'm doing, when I put you in the water, I'm not just washing you off like mama says, make sure you wash your hair on your, when you're in your bathtub. I am actually symbolizing the death of Jesus in which you're fully under. And aren't you glad, person getting baptized, that I don't leave you there for three days? <laughs> because the picture is that. The picture is Jesus going into the grave, and three days later, the Spirit of God raises him up, and he's out. 
you only got half of a second. It's going to be okay. So we dipped you under for a half second. I pull you back up. And as I'm doing that, I am saying, you are buried with Christ. And you are risen again to new life. And the beauty of that imagery is something that we just can't lose. It's such a foundational picture of what baptism is. Christ died, he was buried, he was risen, and in our union with him, we are united in his, in his burial, which means the old, the flesh, dies. And the power of sin over us dies. And Jesus, as he went to the grave, he fought the darkness, he defeated sin, he defeated death, and he defeated Satan on our behalf. So that when I raise somebody in newness of life out of the water, we recognize the spiritual reality is not what Tim has done in picking somebody up out of the water, but what God the Father has done in raising somebody to a new life. Still with the temptations, still with the battle against the flesh raging, but no longer under the power of sin, no longer a slave to sin, but a new creation in Christ. There's a part of you that has died in that water, and you are now a new creation in Christ. There's a beautiful image there that is so significant, but it also illustrates a new life as a Christian because the end of verse 4 says, basically, when you get out of that water... You walk in a new life. And this is something that, that causes people to struggle. When we ask the question here in a minute, who should get baptized, when we should baptize somebody, this is one of those things that can get people real caught up. Because sometimes people will delay baptism to say, I'm not ready yet. I'm not mature enough yet. I'm, I'm not sure I'm a good enough Christian yet to really be baptized. And, and, and we'll talk about that in a second. But for those of us that are baptized, what you need to know is this is a real call. This, this is a real scenario in which you are made something different in Christ. And the picture of baptism is that you come out of the water somebody different. And the, the, the spiritual reality behind that picture is that the Spirit of God has left you different. And so again, there's a question for not just those thinking about baptism, but a question for those who are baptized. Is your new life with Christ really new? Are you really walking in a way that is different from how you walked before? Now, I said before, baptism does not make you a Christian. It's a demonstration of what has already happened. It's a physical sign, a physical symbol of something that is spiritually already true. I'm going to ask you a question. When is in a wedding ceremony, is a couple married? When is it official? And, and how is it made unofficial? Because within, you see, here's the traditional wedding ceremony, and there's other elements, but the simple basic elements are you have vows, you have the exchange of rings, you have, you may kiss your bride, you have, or you have a minister or officiant declaring, I now pronounce you husband and wife, you may kiss your bride, and then you have the introduction to the audience. It's, I now present to you for the first time, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. What point is it official? And let me ask you a question about the physical sign in there. What role does this ring have in it? Is that couple married because there's a ring on their finger? 
And is that couple then, like, did I just become unmarried by putting my ring in my right hand and it's no longer on my finger? This is a physical representation of something that is not achieved by the physical sign. This physical sign doesn't achieve marriage for anybody. The the marriage declaration is based not on the ring on the finger, but on the vow that is witnessed by God and other witnesses. The vow before God is the central part in which a married couple goes from two to one flesh. And the ring is a physical symbol to remind everybody of what has already happened. And so is baptism. Baptism does not achieve your union with Christ any more than putting a ring on a finger achieves your union with your spouse. Baptism is a physical sign where you celebrate and you remember it. And so me taking my ring off doesn't make me not a Christian anymore, just like putting my ring on didn't make me, or didn't, sorry, doesn't make me not married. Putting a ring on doesn't make me married. Being baptized doesn't make you a Christian. But please do not diminish the beauty of it because your spouse doesn't want you to diminish the importance of your wedding ring. They want you to put that thing on and to wear it proudly and to say, I'm with her. There's beauty there. So then why? So that's what does baptism mean from Romans 6, 3, and 4. Why do we get baptized? This one's all about Jesus. All about what Jesus does and what Jesus commands. Mark 1, 9 and other places in the gospel, Jesus gets baptized. Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in the River Jordan. And let me ask you, why was he baptized? You know, the scriptures, if you read what Jesus says about John and about baptism, we learn that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. So John's message at the, at the Jordan River was saying, come and be baptized, repent of your sins. And when John immersed people in water, it was a way of them turning away from their sins and turning towards God in obedience. Now let me ask you a question. What was Jesus repenting of? Why did Jesus have to be baptized in a baptism of repentance? What Jesus is doing is something different there. Jesus is not repenting of his sins. Jesus is setting an example for us. Jesus is setting an example for us of what it means to be united to God the Father and filled with the Holy Spirit. Because in Jesus' water baptism came the Spirit of God as well. In the order of operations, we don't need to get ourselves confused by saying in the order of operations, Jesus was baptized and then the Holy Spirit came, so you have to be baptized in order for the Holy Spirit to indwell the believer. That's not what we take from that passage. But we do see the connection point that the Spirit of God coming on a believer and water baptism and being um, and God the Father being well pleased with you are all connected around water baptism. Jesus set the example for us so that his followers would be baptized and then he commanded his followers to be baptized. So we are baptized because of Christ's example, number one, but also because of Matthew 28, 19 through 20 where Jesus says, go then to everybody everywhere. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So what is Matthew 28, 19 telling us? It's telling us that Jesus didn't just set us an example. He gave us a command. And he gave the command to you and to whoever brought you into the family of Christ. 
And that when new people come into the family of Christ and begin to follow Jesus, they should be evangelized, discipled, baptized, and taught. It's all there. We should go. We should make disciples by preaching the gospel and moving them towards maturity. And we should baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we should teach them to obey all that I have commanded you all the way to the very end of the age. That's the, the following verse. And so in that, we see Jesus, we, we should be baptized because Jesus did it and Jesus told us to. It's really that simple. There's a beautiful picture that Paul and the epistles give us. There's a beautiful imagery, a beautiful physical illustration there. We should want to be baptized. But even without that beautiful imagery, the simple sense is Jesus set the example and told us to follow the example. So then the next question, when is a good time? to be baptized. Acts, um, all through the book of Acts, you should just read the book of Acts and think about what happens with baptism in the book of Acts. Um, because in the book of Acts, baptism happens really, really quickly. And it happens when people believe. And, and so you have, in, in Acts 8, you have Philip and this eunuch from Ethiopia and Philip is engaging with this eunuch from Ethiopia in the gospel. And immediately he says, let's go get baptized. Now's the time. You've received the message of the gospel. You believe in Jesus. Let's immediately get you in the water to celebrate the physical sign of the spiritual reality that has already taken place. An even better picture in Acts is Acts chapter 10. Cornelius. Cornelius is one of the most significant stories in the New Testament for you and for me. Because Cornelius is a part of uh, God opening up the door for the gospel to go not just to the Jews and to the nation of Israel, but the gospel going to the Gentiles. So Acts 10, the story of this Roman military official called Cornelius, it's a huge hinge on which scripture turns. And the gospel move movement shifts out of Jerusalem and Judea and into the uttermost parts of the earth. And in Acts 10, the short story is, and, and we're not going to have these scriptures on the screen, but I'll refer to a couple. Uh, in Acts 10, Peter's in Joppa. Cornelius is in Caesarea. Cornelius is praying for God to reveal himself to him. Peter is praying for just wisdom on what to do. And at that moment, Peter receives a vision, and Cornelius sends people from Caesarea to Joppa. It's a multiple-day journey. And then as Peter's receiving the vision, as soon as the vision is done, in which the point of the vision is don't call unclean what God calls clean, these Roman soldiers end up at Peter's door, knocking on the door. There's a Roman guy that wants to come and talk to you. And Peter says, okay, this is what the vision meant. God is calling me to go and preach the gospel to a non-Jewish Roman. And in that, what happens is Cornelius is waiting for Peter. And he knows that Peter is coming. And so if you, if you have it in front of you, um, uh, look at uh, Cornelius, look at verse uh, 25 and 26. I, I love this part, or verse 24. On the following day, they entered Caesarea. Okay, so, so Cornelius sends for people to go to Joppa to get Peter. Peter comes willingly because he knows God is ordaining something. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Acts 10.24, Peter was entering into a gospel party. 
was entering into an evangelistic party that he had not planned, but Cornelius, who was at that point a non-believer, and God by his spirit had planned this party for Peter to walk into where he wasn't just sharing the gospel with one person, but, but Cornelius had so much faith in what he was going to hear from Peter and in the validity of it and the significance of it, he called all of his friends and family together in this one room, let's hear what Peter says. So Peter comes in, and he preaches the gospel. Now we'll skip down to verse 39. We are witnesses of all that Jesus did in the country of the Jews in Jerusalem. And they, meaning the Romans, they put him to, Romans and the Jews, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. And God raised him on the third day and made him appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen as God's witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who receives in him for, receives or believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now verse 44. This is where I really want us to hit. While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Okay, so let's recognize. We have key figure Cornelius, key figure Peter, and they both have people with them. Cornelius has friends and family that need to receive the gospel. Peter has other believers that are Jews, that are among the circumcised, but believers in, in Jesus as Messiah. And everybody's coming together, and these people are amazed at the beautiful truth that Peter is sharing. And then the Holy Spirit falls on these people, and these people over here that came with Peter are like, what is happening? Why is the Spirit of God falling on, the Jew, or on these non-Jews? And look at what happens. They were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God, worshiping God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. When is a good time to get baptized is our question. And the answer is after receiving the Holy Spirit. Uh, it, when we receive the good news of the gospel by faith, and we, and listen, the examples in Acts are adult examples, okay? So when an adult receives the gospel and believes, then it should be an immediate thing like the Ethiopian, like Cornelius and everybody else there. An immediate response to the work of the gospel, because when somebody, let's be clear here about what I'm saying. When somebody receives the gospel, that is a work of the Holy Spirit. That's not a good decision. That's not, that's not human logic convincing somebody. That's a work of the Holy Spirit where somebody responds in faith through the power of the Holy Spirit to the message of the gospel. And that work of the Holy Spirit is then followed up with the act of baptism. And in a case where you have an adult, it's, a, it's an immediate thing. And you recognize, listen, um, that you cannot, from this passage, bring any sort of, uh, of conclusion that baptism is what saved Cornelius and those people. The, the waters of baptism did not make them right with God because the Holy Spirit was already there in them. That, that's, that's the po point of salvation. The point of salvation, they responded to what Peter said, and God evidenced it through sending the Holy Spirit on them, and it was only when the Holy Spirit was sent on them that the people said, hey, let's baptize them. And so we can't, we, there are some churches that believe that baptism is a part of salvation and you cannot be saved without the physical waters of baptism. And I would say from this passage, then why was the Spirit already working through these people before 
the waters of baptism were involved. Okay? So this passage tells us, yes, baptism is good when it's done quickly, but it doesn't save you. But then the, the harder question, actually, in this, when is a good time to be baptized, is the examples that God gives us in the book of Acts of people being baptized are adults responding to the gospel and literally turning from one way of life to another. And what happens when you have a child? Back to the way I introduced this with my own story of my own childhood, my own questions and concerns about my own children. With six, eight, and ten, how do you discern somebody's, a young child's knowledge of the gospel? And when you get to the point where you are confident enough in what they believe, you, you have another question. We've dealt with one question with different um, groups of Christian disagreeing of, well, some think baptism is necessary for salvation, some don't. Let's take an aside for a second and let's talk about those that baptize infants. What does that have to do with anything? It doesn't look like we're talking about believers responding in faith and, and, and being baptized. Why are people baptizing infants over here? One more verse, and we'll, we'll start to wind this down, but we have a couple more questions that are significant here. Colossians 2, verse 11 and 12. And we'll talk about why people baptize infants, what, what they're doing when they do that, and why ultimately, I believe it's wrong, but understand what they're seeing here. Uh, Colossians 2, verse 11 says, In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Here's the other important picture of baptism. Baptism is a physical sign of the beauty of the new covenant with Christ. And you know, there's a physical sign of the old covenant. The old covenant, the relationship between Israel and God, was given the physical sign of circumcision. And so the physical sign of circumcision identified who was under the covenant and therefore under the blessing of God and who was not under the covenant and not under the blessing of God. And that was males, but it was through the, the male circumcision came the household under the blessing of God in old covenant. New covenant, it's baptism. Baptism is the physical sign of the covenant in which Jesus has made an arrangement with his church has made an agreement for salvation and blessing over his church. So those that baptize infants recognize what they're doing. There are some, okay, because there are multiple categories. And whenever you talk about somebody on their views of baptism, make sure you understand what they're actually believing, what they're actually talking about, and not just assuming. Because some do believe that infant baptism achieves salvation for the child being baptized. But not all. Certainly not all. There are others that will believe that it is right and fitting to baptize infants because baptism replaces circumcision. And who was circumcised? Infants were circumcised. And when infants were circumcised to be placed under the covenant, the old covenant, so children are baptized to be placed under the new covenant with Christ. And the reason they're doing that is not to say that child who was baptized as an infant is saved by Jesus now. No, they would still say, that person needs to receive the gospel and respond to the gospel on their own. But they would say, I want my child to be under God's blessing as a part of the church. So the 
new covenant sign of infant baptism would be entrance into God's people, the church. In the same way, the old covenant sign of circumcision is entrance into God's people, Israel. And so recognize we have to be careful in the assumptions we make about those who baptize believers and those who baptize infants. There are some who baptize believers that I disagree with more strongly than those who baptize infants. Because there are things where we have to be sure of what we actually mean. The view that says baptism achieves salvation, whether you're talking about a believer or an infant, to me is more dangerous than seeing it as a sign of a covenant that can be given to believers or infants. Okay? So understand, there's, and there's a lot of complexity there that I'm not necessarily going into, but I do want us to at least have a little bit of an understanding why those that baptize infants do that. But look at verse 12. Right here in that next verse is why I don't think that's the right way. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. And that, to me, tells me that those who are subject to baptism are exercising faith. That baptism and faith is connected. And infants are not exercising faith in their baptism. And therefore, don't think that is the right... That, that is not what Scripture is saying here. And so... We baptize. We baptize believers who know the gospel, receive the gospel, respond to the gospel, and show evidence, just like Cornelius and his household, show evidence of Christ at work through his spirit. And so the question is, okay, when should we be baptized? If you're an adult and you believe in Jesus, you should be baptized on August 14th, the next time you have the opportunity to do so. It's, it's really that, that simple. Because it's, yeah, there's an importance discerning to when am I ready? What is my maturity? Is the Spirit of God really working in me? Is this important to me? You should not be baptized because I told you to. You should be baptized because you're hearing the Word of God, you're convicted, and you're saying, I want to take this step in obedience to Jesus. And I want to be a part of this public celebration of what Jesus has done. And so don't be sensitive to the fact that that you're not a child, and, and if there's a 10-year-old being baptized on August 14th and a 17-year-old being baptized on August 14th, and you're 55 years old, don't be sensitive to that. Just be baptized. Just let us all celebrate together. Because the question for an adult, when is a good time to be baptized? Whenever you feel the Spirit of God working on you to be baptized, and you know you believe the gospel and responded to the gospel, then it's time to get baptized. And your next step is to Take one of those sheets home on the countertop and then just send me a message. Text me, call me, email me, and we'll sit down. We'll talk some more about it. We'll get you on the list. But the harder question, back to kids for a second here. How do you discern if your child, if your grandchild is ready for the physical act of baptism? I would say, based on everything we've said, that child needs to be able to understand the gospel, explain the gospel back to you, I don't think it has to be as intense as, as what my parents did where my mom acted like she had no idea what I was talking about just to see how, how well I knew it. But just being able to respond to practical questions of the gospel, being able to um, uh, let and, and listen. When somebody's baptized, they're going to be baptized by a pastor or elder of Fellowship Bible Church after an interview. And so, parents, if you have questions there's no problem with let's just sit down and talk to it. I'd be happy to talk to you and your child together and, and talk through these questions. But that child needs to be able to understand the gospel and, and explain what they have understood in the gospel. 
Understand that they're a sinner that is condemned in their sin without Jesus paying the penalty for their sin. And what you want to see with a young child is you want to see some evidence of the Holy Spirit working in their life. You want to know as a parent that that child is convicted by their sin and is, is growing in some way. That's a really good sign of seeing that somebody really does have Jesus working in them. But also, the same thing I said with adults, we do not want people to be baptized under compulsion. So please, parents, grandparents, we don't want your children to be baptized because you want them to be baptized. We want your, parent, we want your children to be baptized because you have understood it and explained it to them or somebody has explained it to them and they've been excited and they've said, yeah, that's me. You describe to them what a person that gets baptized look like and they say, that's me. I believe in Jesus. I'm following Jesus. I believe that, that, that Jesus died for my sin and paid the penalty for me and I'm ready to respond. And I'll just tell you, it, there, there's not a set age. In my personal experience over doing this for the last decade plus I think having conversations in that 8, 9, and 10 range is, is a good range to have those conversations. Some kids, it's okay to be baptized at 17. It's okay to be baptized at 8. I, I, I don't usually go below 8 with those conversations because I want to see a greater developmental age and a developmental understanding so we can have those gospel conversations. So that's just a, some practical advice for you as parents, from me as a parent and a pastor thinking through these questions for my own kids. Last question on our list. How? Publicly. How should we do it? We do it publicly. Look back at Acts chapter 10, and you see that Cornelius threw a gospel party, which became a baptism party, so that everybody could be there to celebrate together. Nobody celebrated with my dad, brother, and I other than the three of us when I received salvation in Christ. Nobody celebrated when Eden received salvation in Christ except for Jess and I and the people that we then sent messages to. But it's not like there were a ton of people in the room. But when somebody takes the step of baptism, there's a bunch of people in the room and you get to celebrate and you get to have that gospel party where you celebrate what Christ has done in that person's life. And yeah, I, I do think, and I think there's something powerful about doing small baptisms in a swimming pool or in a family sense but I really do believe, I really do believe, guys, that as a church, in the same context that we've been talking about for these three weeks, there's something beautiful that happens when we gather together. And when we gather together to celebrate what God has done in an individual's life, that's just a, a bigger party. And a, the bigger party, the better when it's celebrating God's work in somebody's life. So yeah, we do it publicly because Jesus... Jesus had great communion with God privately. Jesus went up to the mountains to pray. Jesus went, and Jesus' greatest communion with God was had in those early morning hours away from his disciples. But he chose to be baptized in front of a lot of people for a reason, because it's a public sign. And so in the same way, you can have great fellowship with God in the quiet of your own prayer closet, but when it comes to baptism, it's a public display. So in closing, we'll, we'll bring it back to all of us, because I recognize... Um, some of you have been baptized, and some of you are sitting here thinking, this is a message for other people to discern this step, but he, I think everybody has a step in this room. For some people, the step is respond to the gospel for the first time, that there's a category of people that need to confess their sin to Jesus, repent and turn around, and those are the people that need to urgently seek me out at the end of the service. 
and let's get that work done of finding new life in Christ. Then there's another category of people that have that new life in Christ, that have responded to the gospel, and need, now need to take the public step to celebrate that, that spiritual act through the physical display of baptism. But then there's this other category of those of us that have been baptized. And what we need is a little bit of rejuvenation of what it means to be united with Christ and walking in newness of life. We need to, again, be re-excited about what Christ has accomplished in us and for us. And we need to walk out of this place fresh with a fresh reminder that we are united to Christ and called to new life. So as the band comes and as we stand and worship to end our service in, in celebration this morning, I want you to end in celebration of the beauty of the gospel and the goodness of God, but I also want you to end discerning from the Spirit of God, what is my next step? How am I going to respond to the preaching of the Word? Because for some of us too, let's add one more category. The answer, the next step, is proclamation of this beautiful gospel that we've received. Recognizing there's beauty in the spiritual reality of being baptized into Christ Jesus and there's beauty in that physical act. And I want to go and share that beauty with somebody else that hasn't yet heard, that hasn't yet responded. If you would, stand and let's sing together. Amazing love, thou welcomes me. The kindness of mercy that bought with blood wholeheartedly my soul undeserving God your soul.
Father, we do. We celebrate your goodness this morning, the beauty of the cross. And we praise you for we who are visual people, who are physical people, that you give us physical celebrations of your spiritual realities that you have accomplished. So your... But you ask us to obey you in actions like the Lord's Supper, in actions like baptism, to be a part of celebrating physically what you have accomplished for us spiritually. And so, God, I do pray that we would all leave convicted, challenged, and encouraged this morning to walk in a life worthy to which we have been called, to walk out of this place as someone different in newness of life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to make clear what I was talking about because I think I said it more clearly in the first service. On August 14th, we will have a baptism service. And we have at least four people right now. But my goal is that we're going to do it about once a month for this fall. And so if you are, if God's moving in you to be baptized, come and talk to me. Get in touch with me sometime this week and we can add to the list for August 14th. We can also add to the list for future weeks as well, because we want this to be a, a fall of celebrating what God is doing in our midst and what God is doing in individuals. And I'll tell you too, out of the four baptized that are on the list for the 14th right now, we have one elementary school child, we have te two teenagers, and we have one adult. So anywhere in there, don't feel like you have to fit this mold in order to be a candidate for baptism and be a part of that celebration. Now, as we leave, Receive the blessing from the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.